Well, good afternoon, everyone. As we continue on in our series um, in Philippians, I just wanted to actually, before I get to that, I just want to say how great it was to have in worship. I loved hearing Jay uh, with the harmonica. Just added, didn't that add such such a color and flavor to that song? And uh, first it was Melody the other week, and now it's Jay. It's just beautiful. So uh, with her singing last week, it was just a revelation. Wonderful. Today, as we continue on in our series through on Paul's epistle to the Philippians, uh, our series is called Joy. And this is a very important topic, having joy, spiritual joy in your life. We've come out of, for the most part, several years of a lot of misery, a lot of chaos, a lot of despair, uncertainty. And uh, one of the greatest witnesses you can have as a Christian is how amidst uh, a chaotic world that you hold on to the joy that you have in Christ. And so Philippians was really written with that topic in mind. How do we have joy despite our circumstances? How do we rejoice uh, in the Lord? And so we've been looking through this epistle in Philippians chapter 2. And um, I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verse 17 through 30. Verse 17 through 30. And today we're going to look at three men, Paul, Timothy, and Titus. I'm I'm sorry, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. Um, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. And we're going to ask ourselves, what can we learn about our own spiritual walk with God from Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus? And I think these men uh, have an important message, an important example for us here today for the 21st century church. And so let's go ahead and stand together, and we're going to read our passage, Philippians chapter 2, verse 17 through 30. The Apostle Paul wrote this. First, he speaks about himself, then Timothy, and then Epaphroditus. Verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad, says Paul, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Verse 19, as he transitions to Timothy, I hope in the Lord Jesus Christ to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by good news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. In verse 25, he now talks about Epaphroditus. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. 
So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray together. Father, um, we need to learn from Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus today, because their example is something that we need to emulate as a church. And um, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move to sanctify us to, uh, to a sacrificial service unto you and your people, to a, a faith that is moving and loyal to those around us, and to, uh, to a faith that takes godly ris- risks for the kingdom of God. And we, may we learn that from these three men today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now have a seat. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to look at these three men and ask ourselves, what do we need to learn from them? And I think it's very important. Um, before we go into our passage today, I want to talk about why I think the example of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus is important for us here today. So I'm going to take a kind of a step away from this passage for a moment, talk about what's happening in our world and why these men are important for us to learn about today. Right now, we live in a very difficult spiritual environment. For the church here in the West, here in the 21st century, there are two overarching spiritual dynamics that are happening at this particular point in human history that make it difficult to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And it's very important we kind of take a look at the macro before we get to this passage, and then you'll, I think you'll understand why Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus are important. So number one, there we live in an overall cultural climate right now that is post-Christian and anti-Christian. Here in the West, we live in a time when people feel like they've moved beyond Christianity. We've tried it here in the West, really to move beyond it. That's post-Christianity. Post-Christianity says, we don't need the Bible. We don't need the church. We don't need organized religion. I can be spiritual. I can be good on my own without it. That's post-Christian. And um, I think when you look at uh, the younger generations, when you look at the millennials, when you look at the Gen Zers, uh, that is probably one of the greatest spiritual descriptions of where especially the younger generations are at, let alone many Gen Xers as well, and some boomers. And so you live in this, this, po- this cultural climate that's post-Christian, but it's not just post-Christian. It's actually anti-Christian as well. So... If certain people in a post-Christian context say, well, you know, if you're Christian, if that works for you, that's fine. I have my own truth. That's post-Christian. Anti-Christian is, oh, you're a Christian. Um, Well, if you're telling me that I'm living in a way that's not in accordance with your Bible, um, I'm going to come at you. I'm going to persecute you. I'm going to ostracize you because I see you now as a Christian as a threat. And so today in the overall big picture of the time and place we live here in the West. It's post-Christian, it's anti-Christian. This presents a certain challenge. We don't live in Christian dome anymore here in the West. 
where, you know, you could go down the street and every other block there's a church that uh, eight or nine out of 10 people are there on Sunday morning. It's not true anymore here in the West. And so that's the first thing that makes it difficult to be a Christian. The second thing that makes it difficult to be a Christian actually is happening internally in the church right now. And um, I love the church. I grew up in the church. I think that God uses the church to bring the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That said, um, I think an honest evaluation with where the church here in Western culture is would have to look something like this. I think within the church, the second dynamic that makes it difficult for many of us to be faithful as Christians is we get exposed to a church environment that tells us that the way that we should look at church is we should be um, consumers. We should be spiritual consumers. We should go church shopping. So I will look at church and I will say, I'm going to treat it like I'm going to go to the mall. Like nobody goes to the mall anymore. I understand that, right? But when you used to go to the mall, you would say, I will go to the mall and I, I go to the food cart, who, court. Uh, there's all these wonderful choices of places to eat. And then I can go to any number of department stores and choose what I want. And so when I go to the mall, I say, I'm here to consume. I want a lot of choices before me and I want a very comfortable air conditioned experience. And for decade after decade after decade here in America, a lot of people have looked at the church that way. They've said, we're going to go church shopping. We'll evaluate church by um, who provides the most comfortable experience, who provides the, um, every, all, everything I pretty much need. And another thing that's been happening in the American church is not just this consumeristic mindset, but we also have gotten into this bad habit of looking at our experience of church as a place where I just see church as a refuge. I see it as a place of safety. Okay, my life outside church, oh, it's a mess. I'm dealing with all of this terrible stuff and terrible people. It's hopeless out there. But I know that when I'm a part of a church and in community with the church, man, it's just like my refuge, right? It's just this safe place to meet for me to be in a cocoon with a group of people just to recharge my batteries so that I can just face the world, get torn down again, and then just recharge week in and week out. Now, there's some truth to that. The church should be kind of a refuge in a way. But we've gotten into this mindset that we're here to raise Christians where the goal of your Christian faith is to live the most comfortable, safe Christian uh, walk that you can find. And the last thing on this second part of what makes it difficult to be a Christian is just not post-Christian anti-Christian culture. You come to church, it's consumeristic. We have emphasized the places, church is a place to be comfortable and solely safe. But the other thing that, uh, that has happened in the church is that we tend to come to you, many churches come to you and say, you know what? We, we think that you should evaluate who you are through all of these positive psychological diagnostic tests to discover the real you that's in you. Um, it used to be go back into the seventies. That was what color is your parachute? Are you blue color or white color or red color? It's a personality test. And then it went to Myers Briggs. And then it went to things like the disc strength finders, Enneagram, and what's it going to be next? Right. And we basically say, 
If you can just figure out through this positive psychological test who the true you is, then, uh, then you'll be on your way to a more fulfilled life. And it's baloney. See, what we should have been doing in the church, instead of creating consumers, creating people who see the church as the safest way and most predictable place possible, and, and committing, uh, raising people who are non-committal in the church saying, I'm here at this church until I'm not, and then I'm not here at this church. What we should have been doing instead of telling people, uh, you know, just discover the real you, is we should have been doing the opposite. We should have been saying to people this time, you know what? All of that stuff, it's bogus. What we should do instead is simply look at the men of the Bible and godly women and say, who were people like Paul? Who were people like Timothy? Who were people like Epaphroditus as they try and live out the faith? And how can I emulate them? And if they provide for me an example that is counter to the, some of these other malaise that has happened in the church, then so be it. And so this is why it is very, very important to look at Paul, to look at Timothy, to look at Epaphroditus. Because when you do, you say, this is the best way to live in a post-Christian culture. This is the best way to live in an anti-Christian culture. This is the way that's going to break me free. There's like this zombie hand that's rising up from the grave to pull you down as a Christian into this lukewarm Christianity. And you say, no, I'm going to get away from that zombie I'm going to look at godly men in this example and try and emulate them. And that's how I want to live so that I don't fall into this other stuff. And so today, when we look at these three men, I want you to keep in mind, I want you to be asking yourself, as I listen to Paul about his life, as I listen to Timothy, as I listen to Epaphroditus, what area of my life do I need to emulate more? Okay. So with that said, as we go to our passage, uh, we actually looked at this verse last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. In verse 17 and verse 18, I think we have that. Let's go on to the next slide. Uh, this is a passage where Paul is talking about himself. Now, what's happening here? He says in verse 17 and 18, He's being poured out like a drink offering for the sacrifice of the faith of the Philippians. And he, but he, he's glad and he's rejoicing because suffering for the Lord and suffering for God's people. Verse 18, and he's encouraging Philippians to be glad and rejoice with him. Now, what is happening here? Paul, as he writes this background, this is his first of two Roman imprisonments. This is the Roman house arrest that he was experiencing in Acts chapter 28. It's the last chapter of the book of Acts. Paul is writing Philippians over, uh, there was a two-year period when he was under house arrest. And that's when he wrote Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and I believe Philemon as well. During this first Roman imprisonment of about two years, Paul has rented a house. He's in Rome. But he's under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman guard, to a chain of about a foot and a half. Roman guards would guard him 24-7, being chained to Paul, maybe changing the guard every, I don't know, what is it, 8, 12 hours or whatever that might be, 24 hours. And that's how Paul lived. And that is in that context that he is writing to the Philippian church, and he is saying here in these verses, I mean, poured out as a drink offering, 
I'm being sacrificed for your faith. Who's the faith? The faith of the Philippians. But notice he has joy. Notice he's calling the Philippians to rejoice of what's happening. Now, Paul, at this time, we know that he expected to be released. We can look back on, uh, on his testimony thus far in earlier in Philippians, where he said, I'm expecting, I'm trusting that the Lord will release me from this situation. And he writes to the Philippians and he says, I'm glad. I rejoice with you all. Now, why? Would he rather be free? Yes. Why is he rejoicing? Why is he rejoicing when he's spending two years under house arrest? Why is he rejoicing when he doesn't have all the freedoms he should have? He's, I mean, if you were to look at Paul when he's writing this, he would have had scars on his back. He would have been whipped for his faith. He had testimonies of, of Christians who had befriended him, worked with him for the gospel, and then betrayed him. He had been shipwrecked. He had been adrift at sea many days, and he had been on the run in persecution. Why would this man say, I rejoice, I am glad, I am being sacrificed on the offering of your faith? When he says this in verse 17, sacrifice official offering of your faith, he is not talking about knowing he's going to immediately die. He used the same language of being being poured out like a drink offering and being sacrificed in 2 Timothy chapter 4. When he would write that years later, he knew he was about to die and he was about to be truly sacrificed physically. Right now, when he's writing several years before that, in the first Roman imprisonment, he is saying in verse 17, when I'm being sacrificed as an offering for your faith, he's saying, um, my life is being given so that you could believe. He's drawing an Old Testament metaphor. Once a year, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies in the temple and sprinkle blood over the the altar in the Holy of Holies as a day of atonement to atone for the sins of the people. And so Paul is kind of using that that, that, uh, Hebrew metaphor of the priest going and sprinkling the offering of the animal and the blood being put on the altar to say, just like that happened, I am this drink offering this blood offering that's being offered to the Lord for your faith. And yet I'm glad. I'm glad and I rejoice. Let me stop there. This is Paul. It is very, very important that you have an Apostle Paul-like figure at your church. We're not going to be the Apostle Paul, and we're not an apostle. There's no more apostles. But Leaders in the church that are like Paul, that are saying, I'm calling you to a place of great sacrifice for the faith, and I'm demonstrating that in my own life, and I'm doing it, I'm sacrificing myself so that you could believe. It's very important to have those people. See, I think a lot of times in the church, we get used, we want Luke's and we want Barnabas's, but we don't necessarily want Paul's. See, Luke was a great teacher. He was very accurate when he wrote the, the Gospel of Luke, right? As a timely account of Christ's ministries. And, and a lot of times we, we want a Luke as a pastor who's, who's a very precise teacher, very methodical. And those people are very important to have in church. Teachers are like Luke. And sometimes we want Barnabases who are just like a friend to all, like encouragers. Barnabas was an encourager of Paul. 
And we want pastors like that, right? Everyone loves a pastor who's really known as the friend to all and encourager. But it's very, very important to have a person like, a, a Pauline-like figure in the church. The person who says, I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to sacrifice. Why? For your faith. And to have that. Let me ask you a question. You, you may not be like a Pauline figure, but I think for Paul, when he says this, it's, you have to ask yourself, if Paul was willing to sacrifice for the Philippians and he was rejoicing, am I? You see, I'm convinced that you're not going to grow as a Christian. You're not going to mature as a Christian if you're not suffering for being a Christian. And if you're not suffering for the faith of other people. Are you suffering for the faith of other people? You know, um, I, there's a conversation I have had literally 300 times, no joke, 300 times over about 20 years plus years of pastoral ministry, 300 times. I haven't obviously had it with the same person. But I've had it with dozens and dozens and dozens of people over at least 20 years. So when I say what I'm about to say, I am not talking about any one person. And I may not absolutely be referencing any one person in this church at this moment. But the conversation I've had basically goes like this. Uh, Pastor, my life is very hard. My past plagues me. I'm in a difficult position in the present. I look to the future and I feel like I'm a believer, but I'm a hopeless believer. My past, my present, my future, it's all uncertain. I'm just in a very difficult place. And when I hear that in the churches that I've been to, um, I think overall, we do a pretty good job of ministering to people who are just going through a difficult place. Don't get me wrong, right? And I look at many people in this church and many people who aren't even here today who have sacrificed and loved and helped people who are in difficult places. That all said, there are difficult times. And we do a pretty good job as Christians to minister to people who are going through difficult times, and that's valid. That all said, I think what I've also noticed is that you can be a Christian and be so caring, so loving, so hopeful for someone to get out of the difficult season whether that season is year after year after year, that they're in, that we can sometimes as a church look at situations that go on for year after year after year and say, man, yeah, I I understand that's just a very difficult place. It's a very difficult place. And we understand, just take your time, just do whatever you need year after year after year. And there comes a point when I really believe what Paul would say is, There's a time to help, but there's also a time to say, you know what? I'm going to call you to follow me as I follow Christ. Because one of the best things that could happen to you is not just that you have the body of Christ ministering to you, 
but also that you face the reality that one of the ways that your spiritual healing is going to happen is if you put yourself in situations voluntarily where you say, I'm pouring out my life as a sacrificial offering for, as Paul said, your faith, verse 17, other people's faith. And I want to ask you, Paul was suffering here. Why are you suffering? You might be suffering, and it's not your fault. There was some evil that was thrust upon you at some point. Some bad situation or some evil person came into your life. Not your fault. Maybe you're suffering for certain decisions that you made long ago that have just kind of plagued you for a long time. And that's really difficult, right? But I do believe that when Paul is saying here he was suffering for the right things and the right God and for the right people, that is why he could say in verse 17 and 18, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. And I want you to be glad and rejoice with me. You know what's really interesting? When you look at the prayers of Paul and the encouragements of Paul, um, he, for the most part, did not ask to always be delivered from the situation he was in. I mean, yes, there were times, you know, take this thorn away from me, 2 Corinthians. We get that. But for the most part, Paul simply exhibited rejoicing and joy for the situation he was in. And for the most part, he said, I want you to rejoice with me, and I'm going to just trust the Lord in this, and I'm going to keep moving forward. And he didn't allow the circumstance to completely dictate his view on what the Lord wanted for his life to move forward. And I think if you're here today, one of the things that um, you should be encouraged by is to say, if I want gladness in my life, verse 17, if I want to rejoice in my faith, verse 17, if I want to be a source of gladness to encourage others to rejoice, verse 18, then you have to ask yourself amidst my diff, and Paul had difficulty amidst my own difficulty. How am I, verse 17, pour, being poured out as a drink offering? For the faith of others. Because if your faith is just about you and God, you know what? Um, you might be saved, but you're going to live your spiritual life as a spiritual black hole. Just constantly sucking the life, just needing more and more and more and feeling like you've got nothing to give to anyone. Because as you look at your faith, and you're trying to get away from your past, deal with your present, and have hope for the future. And you're looking at your faith, and it's you and God, and God help me. And you are not seeing what Paul was saying here, where he was saying, no, I pour, I'm being poured out. For who? Your faith. Your faith. You may have problems here today, but I can guarantee you, they are not worse than Paul's problems. When he wrote this, absolutely. He had a, a lot more problems than you have right now. And yet he knew, and he, his source of joy and gladness was not, hey, I will have this when I get released from this house arrest. He was saying, I can have joy. I can have rejoicing in my life because even though I'm stuck here for like two years and it's a terrible situation, I know in my spirit, man, I've given myself to the right thing. I have invested in people for eternity. 
and I can see the fruit in their life from what I have devoted myself to. And so therefore, even though I'm in this difficult situation, I can hold on to my joy and my gladness. See, if Paul was sitting there in that prison for two years, and he's like, yeah, you know what? When I met Christ in Acts 9, I just kind of sat there. I just tried to study the scriptures, and I just sat there at my in my house, and then I got thrown into prison because I just sat as a Christian, and they threw me in there. I think he'd be in a great deal of despair. Because they say, you know what? I wasted so much time. And time did not become a factor for Paul when he could say, I have redeemed the time. And I wonder how many of us are here today. And the biggest problem is not just the situation that we find ourselves in. The biggest problem is that we don't have enough of a testimony of us investing into the faith of other people so that we can have joy amidst our own circumstance. And so that was Paul. And as we move on to Timothy now, in this section, he says this in verse 19 and 24. Um, He talks about Timothy in in just really glowing terms. Um, And Timothy is actually with Paul in Rome. And Paul wants to, Timothy is not under house arrest, so he has some freedom. And Paul wants to send Timothy to the Philippians, which are in modern day Greece. Okay, so picture this, they're in Rome, they're in Rome, Paul's in house arrest, he wants to send Timothy over across the sea to Greece, where the Philippian church is. And Paul says this in verse 19, he, he wants to be cheered by the news, he wants to send Timothy to the Philippi so that he, he can experience a cheer by the news of how the Philippians are doing. And um, he says in verse 22 of our passage, when he describes Timothy, that this is a man of, quote, proven worth. Verse 22 again, he says, Timothy is like a son, and I am like his spiritual father. Timothy was very valuable to Paul. Who was Timothy? In Acts chapter 16, you guys remember this, right? In Acts chapter 15, actually, Paul and and Barnabas had an argument. Paul went one way with Silas, Barnabas and John Mark went another. And when Paul and Silas went off, they came to an area called like Derby and Lystra. It's in modern day Galatia today, which is modern, I mean, Galatia, which is modern day Turkey. And when they came there, they met a young man named Timothy. And Timothy had a Jewish mother who had taught him the Old Testament scriptures. We know that from 2 Timothy chapter 1. His mother was Jewish who had taught him the Old Testament scriptures. His father was Greek and pagan. And so when Paul met Timothy, he shared the gospel with him. Timothy gave his life to Christ. Paul circumcised him because they knew he was, he was Greek, so he wasn't circumcised. He circumcised him. Timothy's probably like a teenager or something like that. I mean, you want to talk about sacrifice for the gospel, right? Um, and uh, he, he takes Timothy with him on his second missionary journey. And Timothy's going with him as a young man, and he becomes a believer. And we know that Timothy was very close to Paul. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. Paul talks to Timothy, Paul describes Timothy as my beloved son. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, Paul describes Timothy as my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Um, and he also talks about him as my fellow worker in Romans chapter 16, verse 21. Actually, I might have gotten that a little bit mixed up. There's a, a 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17 passage in there as well. For 10 years, at minimum, uh, Timothy ministered with Paul throughout the book of Acts. Throughout the book of Acts, Timothy ministered with Paul, and a little bit after that as well, as he's mentioned in the epistles. But for 10 years, Timothy either went with Paul to some different cities, or he was sent by Paul to these different churches to troubleshoot, or Timothy was mentioned by Paul in some of his epistles. And when you put all of that together, Timothy had accompanied Paul to Corinth to do ministry. Timothy had accompanied Paul to Jerusalem to do ministry. Paul sent Timothy to Corinth to troubleshoot, to Thessalonica to troubleshoot, to Ephesus to troubleshoot, to Philippi to troubleshoot. Timothy was his faithful companion to Paul. In fact, Timothy is mentioned in Paul's epistle to the Romans, to the Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, to the Philippians, to the Colossians, to the Thessalonians, and to, uh, and, and to the Philippians, yes. And he was defined as some, a man who was faithful and dependable. In every way, Timothy was Paul's faithful ministry companion. In fact, when you look in verse 20, he says, I have no one, Paul says, I have no one like him of Timothy. No one else is like him. In verse 21, he compares Timothy to the Roman leaders, the church leaders in Rome. In verse 21, where he says, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. What's happening here in verse 20 and 21? Paul is saying, while he's in Rome, Paul's looking at the Roman church and the leaders of the Roman church, and he's saying what? As I look at the leaders of the Roman church, they're not apostate, they're not heretical, these are true believers. However, these leaders, they have their own interests in mind, not Christ's. And Timothy's different. Timothy's different than these Roman leaders. They're leading the church, but they're leading the church with their own interests in mind, their own glory their own interests above Christ. And you know what? You can find people in the church who are like that, right? You can find people who will actually share the gospel correctly, but inside what is internally going on in their heart, they're sharing Christ out of wrong motives. They're sharing it because, hey, I want to have um, a glorious ministry that everyone can know my name. They're sharing Christ, maybe correctly, doctrinally, because they want to get rich. And what you can find in the church is that people not, can, not only can be false teachers, but people can share the gospel correctly, but have their own interests above Christ. In fact, when you go back to Philippians chapter 1, and you look back when Paul had said in verse 15, he said uh, of these people, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, rivalry but others from goodwill. 
The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Verse 18, what then? Only then in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and that I rejoice. Paul recognized when he was writing to the Philippians, he said, you know what? I have experience with many people who preach Christ out of the wrong motivation. And so Timothy was not like that. And so really, when you think about Timothy, he was loyal, he was faithful, and he moved from place to place. What do we draw, what lessons do we draw from Timothy that we can apply to our own life? And I think there's two things. Number one is that what you discover with Timothy is that when he moved with Paul, and he was moving throughout the Roman Empire, and he was moving from Jerusalem and to Ephesus and to Philippi and to Thessalonica and to Corinth and to Rome. He was going to all these different places. He was doing it because he understood that when you make a commitment to God, your first commitment is to a person and not to a geography. See, what Timothy realized, he said, you know, if I'm going to truly follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, what I have to do is discern what God is doing and be part of it. And that moved Timothy from the Galatian region of modern-day Turkey. It moved him to Greece. It moved him to Jerusalem. It moved him all throughout the Roman Empire. Why? Because he said, I'm going to go where God wants me to go. I'm going to stay where God wants me to stay. And see, I, I think that for some of us, we would be um, better served in our Christian walk if we said, um, I need to discern where God wants me to be. And, you know, some, I'm not saying that you, you switch churches every three months or six months. I'm not saying that you got to be here saying, I'm looking for the perfect church. And until I find it, God hasn't led me to it. That's not going to exist. And there's too many people that are like that. They'll say, you know, I'll, I'll commit until I don't commit. I just talked to someone the other day and said, you know, I, I change churches like every like year or two. And just because I just feel like I need to move. I, I talked to another guy who had visited the service about uh, seven months ago. And he said, yeah, you know, I don't commit to any one church. I go to like three or four different churches. I'll just go to a different church every week, just wherever the spirit leads. And you find many people who think like that. And Timothy was not like that. See, what Timothy was, was he said, I will go where I need to go. I will stay where I need to stay. And then I will move to where God wants me. He was not a random church shopper or consumer. He said, this is where the Lord wants me. And I think what we, one of the things we can learn from Timothy is this. What you need to do is you need to discern where God wants you. And if this is where God wants you, then there you should be. Let me say that again. If you have discerned that this is where God wants you, then this is where you should be. In other words, be fully here. Um, if I, when people over, you know, I've been pastoring this church for, um, you know, six years now or so, six or seven years. And we've people seen people come and go. And some of you have been here since the beginning. And I always encourage people, I say, you know, if you're here, then be here because you don't want to be in this middle ground. 
because that's not good for you. It's not good for the Lord. It's not good for the church. So if you've discerned that this is your church and that this is the place that God wants you for your ministry and to be ministered, then be here. But I said, I, I never beg people to stay at this church. What I do say to people is this. I say, if you're here, we will do our absolute best to uh, instruct you, to love you, to help you be equipped for your ministry, um, to befriend you. We will do our absolute best if you're here. However, if you're not here, we want you to be part of a good church elsewhere. But what we don't want to see happen is that you just kind of bounce around all these different places or never commit to anything or anywhere. Because that's not good for the kingdom of God, and it's not good for you. And so Timothy, he moved around, and where he was, there he was. And he was doing, and he saw fruit in his life in God's work. And the second thing that we can see in Timothy's life, not only was he moving to the right places where God wanted him, but he was committed to the gospel, and he was committed to Paul as a leader. Timothy was incredibly loyal to Paul. Right? I mean, he, he'd go to Paul with Paul on ministry. Paul would say, hey, can you go fix that problem at that church? He would go. And Timothy was in Rome with Paul as he's writing this. And that was dangerous for Timothy, right? They could have chucked him in his cell too. Timothy was incredibly loyal to the gospel. He's incredibly loyal to Paul. And you know what? I, I think that that's something that's very difficult to find nowadays. It's people who are very loyal to the gospel and very loyal to um, the leaders of the church that they're at. And we know that to be the case, right? Because many people who make a profession of faith when they're younger abandon it when they get older. And it worked for them when they were a teenager, maybe into their 20s, but you check in with them in their later 20s or 30s, and, and a lot of people are just, they're no longer around in terms of their belief. And um, I think that was not Timothy. And you know what, you guys, I, I will say this, um, and I can say this with full conviction. And this is true of this church, and it's true of any church you're going to be at, any church. If you're part of a church, and you want that church to be fruitful, we all want this church to be fruitful. If you're part of a church, and you want to see people's lives changed, not the least of which is your own. If you're part of a church, and you want to see people come to know Christ. If you're part of a church, and you want to see people discover their ministry, and, and address the evil in the world. If you want all of that from your church, that does not happen without people in the church saying, I will be loyal to the gospel and I will be committed to the church that God wants me to be at. See, the types of churches that God uses most powerfully are the types of churches where people come together and they say, you know what, not in a cult-like manner, that's different. They come together and say, hey, you know what, Um, we're here, we think God wants us here, and so let's do this. Let's be committed to what God has. And I think God looks at that and says, you know what, when you're committed to me and committed to my people, I can bless that. God does not commit, uh, God, God does not bless spiritual nomads. And there are too many people out there who are living this spiritually nomadic lifestyle, living as if, say, you know, I'm just trying to survive in the world and just hold on to any crumble of hope and life that you can give me at church. And that's no way to live. That's a way to exist, but that's not a way to live. And the context 
for God to do his greatest healing work, to bring the greatest amount of life to you, and to use your life to bring life to others is always within the context of saying, I will be committed to what I believe to be is true, and I will be committed to an expression of the gospel through the church. And so I think we can learn that from Timothy. He moved, and he was there where he needed to be, and he was committed. And lastly, for Epaphroditus. For Epaphroditus, and we don't know much about him. In verse 25 through 30, um, we know that Paul thought very highly of him. Epaphroditus, in Greek, means favored by Aphrodite. Epaphroditus was Greek. He was pagan. And then he came to know Christ. And his name means that he's a favored one of Aphrodite. Aphrodite, as you know, was a Greek goddess of love, of romance. And so Epaphroditus eventually came to be known as just someone who was loving. And that's what his name meant. Now, we don't have information on who Epaphroditus was. Uh, This is pretty much the only passage in all of Scripture that talks about Epaphroditus. So, uh, he was not noteworthy, at least as which Scripture tells us, as a teacher. He was not noteworthy as a leader. He did not write any Scripture. There's really nothing else that we know about him other than these six verses. But we see that Paul thought very highly of him. He says in verse 25, that Epaphroditus was Paul's, he called him his, my brother, verse 25. He said, he's my fellow worker, verse 25. My fellow soldier, verse 25 again. And he's a minister to my need. See, what was happening with uh, Epaphroditus is that it says, if you skip on down to verse 30, he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. See, what was ha- Epaphroditus was actually part of the Philippian church in Greece. And the Philippians sent Epaphroditus to Paul to give Paul financial aid for his ministry and so that Paul could take that financial need and also give it to the Jerusalem church that was poor and in need. And as Epaphroditus went from Philippi to visit Paul in Rome when he was under house arrest, it says that he risked his life in verse 30. It says in verse 30 again, he nearly died for the work of Christ. If you go to verse 27, how did he nearly die? He said he was ill, near death, but God had mercy on him. So in his travels from the Philippian church in Greece to Rome, he got sick in some way. He almost died. He made it to Paul. And now the rest of the passage talks, forget this guy, this get, Epaphroditus was amazing. Not only does he risk his life to go to Rome to visit Paul, not only does he almost die of an illness on the way, he gets to Paul and he's recovering. The Philippians hear that Epaphroditus almost died They're concerned about their friend. Epaphroditus in Rome with Paul hears that his sending church was concerned about him. Rightfully so. He almost died. And then Epaphroditus turns and he says, oh, I'm concerned that you're concerned over me. I'm greatly distressed that you're worrying about me because I almost died. And so I don't want you to be distressed. And so Paul wants to send Epaphroditus back to the Philippians so that they won't be distressed that he almost died. 
I mean, this guy is a, this guy's amazing. I mean, if I was Epaphroditus, I would not be distressed that you guys were distressed that I almost died. Okay. If I was Epaphroditus, what I would be saying is, I want you to be more distressed. That way you will pray more for me. You'll send me more aid. You'll help. I'm glad that you're worried because it shows that you care. That's me as Epaphroditus. That's what I'd be thinking. And you know what? You would too, okay? Uh, If you're not, then you should be preaching up here next Sunday, right? And I'm looking at that. and But see, that's not why I'm not in the Bible. That's why I'm not Epaphroditus. Otherwise, I would have been him. Epaphrodite is worried that they're worried that he almost died and he wants to go back and reassure them. That's, I mean, that's just beyond me. And so in verse 29, Paul says, receive him in the Lord when I send him back with all joy and what? Honor such men. Honor such men. Now you see this word in verse 30, verse 30, where it said, he nearly died for the work of Christ. See that word risking in verse 30? Epaphroditus risked his life so that Paul could receive their aid. He was a risk taker. That word risking in verse 30 comes from the Greek word parabolani. Parabolani in the Greek. And that's translated risking. Parabolani could also be translated as gambling. He was a gambler. He was not with money, but he was a risk taker with his faith. He was a person who voluntarily said, I'm going to put myself in a position by taking this money from the Philippian church that you're giving to me. Go make the arduous journey to Rome. I'm going to take a risk at my life, with my life, take a risk of death, which he almost died. And I'm going to do this because it's the right thing to do for God and the kingdom of God and the church. He was a risk taker. In fact, this example, this scripture was so inspirational in Christian history that not long after the the time of the New Testament, in church history, it tells us that there was a group um, after the New Testament that organized themselves into a ministry that was based upon the example of Epaphroditus. And this group was called the Parabuloame, Parabuloame. Um, and that meant this group was based on a ministry to risk and throw aside themselves, to expose themselves to danger. And you know what this group, this parabulome would do? They would visit prisoners in prison out of the example of Epaphroditus. They would minister to people who had communicable deathly diseases because they were risk takers in the way of Epaphroditus. In fact, in 252 AD, that's maybe about 200 years or so after Philippians was written, there was this huge plague that broke out in the city of Carthage, which is in North Africa. And about 200 years after Philippians was written, there was a bishop at Carthage in North Africa. When that plague broke out, this bishop, his name was Cyprian. And Cyprian said, you know what? These pagans, these unbelievers that are looking around at all these people dying in the streets, dead bodies in the streets, these pagans don't want to touch these people. Cyprian, the leader of the church at Carthage, gathered the Christians together and said, amidst this plague, the pagans are just watching people fall dead 
we Christians will rise up. We're going to minister to the death, uh, those who are sick, those who are dying. We're going to bury the bodies that the pagans don't want to touch. And we're going to do this out of the love of Christ, out of the example of men like Epaphroditus. And that's what they did. Can you imagine the impact that that had on the culture around them? And I think what we learn from Epaphroditus is we have to ask ourselves, are we risk takers in the Christian faith? What risks are you taking for the Christian faith right now? Are you playing it too safe? You know, the Christian faith is not just about what you should suffer for. It's not just about what you should be loyal to. It's about what risk are you taking in your spiritual walk. My opinion is that most Christians play it too safe. I'm not talking about being reckless. I'm talking about we play it too, you know, we we live a Christian life that doesn't really require walking by faith. All we need to do is just believe the right things, but we don't actually cross over to believing the right things and then stepping out to actually live by faith. And I think some of us, we need to take more risks. I want to close with this. Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. I think one of the keys for why they were able to maintain their joy, why they had such an impact as we ask ourselves Do I need to be more sacrificial like Paul? Do I need to move like Timothy and be loyal to Timothy, like Timothy to the gospel and to the church um, that I'm a part of? Do I need to be more like Epaphroditus and take more risks to the faith? I think one of the reasons why Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus were able to live like that is because they took the focus off themselves. And they said, my faith, now that I'm saved and transferred from the flames of hell to the gates of heaven, through my faith in Jesus Christ, my eternity is set. But now my faith is not just about me. It's about how God can use me to encourage others in the faith, to bring other people into the faith. You know what, you guys? If you are living a life as a Christian and you don't have much of a testimony of sacrificing for others, um, taking risks for your faith, and... Um, and sacrificing for the faith of others, what's happening in your spirit is you are actually robbing yourself of one of the greatest sources of spiritual joy that you could have as a Christian. And you don't want to, you can visit that place, but you don't want to live there for long term. And, um, and so as we close now together, as we close with communion, as the worship team comes forward, um, I want us to bow in prayer. And just come to the Lord now. And as we receive communion, I want you to say, Lord, I'm going to remember Jesus in my life. I'm going to remember that uh, my need for his forgiveness. I'm going to remember my need for his life. I'm going to remember that me bowing my knee and my tongue confessing him as Lord is what my life is about. And whatever God wants to do with my life, he gets to do with it. Lord, help me to believe that. Help me in my unbelief. Lord, I, am, I don't want to live in a place as a hopeless believer. I want to be renewed in the life of Christ. And I know that there's areas of my life that are broken and sinful, and that is not only the result of other people. But, Lord, I believe through the power of the cross, there is freedom 
There is joy. There is life. And so as I receive communion now, I pray, Lord, that I would remember Christ and his life in me and his forgiveness of me. And God, that you would do a work of grace in my heart, in this act where I come and I remember you and I resubmit my life to the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, Lord. And so I receive that now in communion. And Lord, I pray um, you do a work in my heart. Amen and amen. And when you're ready, you guys, you can approach the communion table. You can receive communion, the juice, the shed blood of Christ, and the bread, the broken body of Christ. And we'll receive it together.